0: Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the Saga of World War II, a Casus Belli project. As a compliment to my interview with Arthur Plachenik, I've decided to do an appendix on the navies of the major combatants. I have spoken a lot about the naval campaigns like the Battle of the Atlantic and the early Pacific Campaign, and the development of the armed forces generally, but I don't think I've ever discussed the state of the world's naval forces during the Second World War as a cohesive subject. So, this appendix is to give some global context for the state of maritime power. Typically, my written appendices are shorter than a standard episode, but this one actually ended up being longer. Still, I feel like I only skimmed each navy I cover. I could probably devote an entire standard episode to each major power's naval forces, but then I would get bogged down in that for weeks and fall behind even more in the actual narrative of the war. So, please forgive me for any rough generalizations in this episode. This is really meant to be a once-over-the-world in naval power. I've included a whole series of pictures and diagrams with this episode at casusbellypodcast.com, so I encourage you to check that out if you want more information on the various ships I've mentioned in the episode. Also, if you're a fan of World of Warships, many of the ships in the game are included in the illustrations I've uploaded to the website. I also encourage you to email me with any questions or corrections you might have at casusbellyguy at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback from listeners. Now, let's begin Appendix E Part 2 the navies of the Second World War. Following the First World War, one of the primary steps taken to prevent another devastating conflict was to implement arms controls. Just as armies were limited in numbers, navies were limited in vessels and tonnage. The first agreement outlining this was the first international naval conference held in Washington, DC, beginning November 12th, 1921. The major signatories to the agreement included the United States, Great Britain, France, Japan, and Italy. The negotiations took more than three months, but eventually all agreed to place a moratorium on construction of new battleships to last 10 years. Following the moratorium, further limits would be placed on who could construct what types of vessels and in what quantity. The United States and Great Britain would be allowed a total of 15 battleships each, under the understanding that both were multi-ocean navies. Japan would be allowed nine ships, and Italy and France were only allowed five battleships. However, the moratorium only lasted five years for them. Restrictions for cruisers, on the other hand, were much more lenient. Any nation could build as many as they please as long as they did not exceed 9,800 tons displacement, and their guns were no larger than 8 inches. A second International Naval Conference was held in 1930 in London. This time, limits were placed on cruisers, limiting the overall tonnage to 324,000 for the United States and Great Britain, and 233,000 tons for Japan. The conference attempted to set limits on submarine construction, but Italy and France would not agree to terms. Lastly, the second naval conference set the end of the battleship moratorium to nineteen thirty six A third naval conference would be held in nineteen thirty six The world in that year was far different from that of nineteen twenty or even nineteen thirty. Germany and Japan were far more belligerent and begun sloughing off the restrictions placed on them by the other world powers in nineteen thirty four Japan reneged on the Washington Naval Conference, and in 1935, Germany stopped adhering to the limits set on the Kriegsmarine in the Versailles Treaty. An increasingly belligerent fascist Italy was also subject to sanctions due to its colonial conquest of Ethiopia, all of which resulted in the Third Naval Conference being a complete failure and no agreement was reached. Politically, the stage was being set and war was looking ever more unavoidable to those with eyes to see so the world's powers began constructing more ships to fight this coming war. As we discussed at length in episode 25, the battleship was still considered the premier capital ship, but the carrier's rising importance was recognized by all. Somewhat ironically, the two powers that recognized the strength of the carrier more so than all others, Japan and the United States, built the largest and most impressive battleships ever put to sea. The United States Navy commissioned the mighty Iowa-class battleships in 1943, and the Japanese would embark the largest battleships ever constructed, the Yamato and the Musashi. Though they were no longer the undisputed kings of naval warfare, they still held an important role. Despite the carrier and battleship being the prestige vessels, the cruiser maintained a critical role and was the real workhorse of the Pacific War. Cruisers bristled with anti-aircraft guns, and, although they sported smaller caliber guns, they were perfectly suited for fighting other cruisers, destroyers, and shore bombardment. Though an 8 inch gun isn't all that much when compared to the enormous 18 inch guns of the Yamato, an 8 inch gun is a massive piece of artillery in terms of ground combat. In addition to the cruisers, hundreds of destroyers plied the world's oceans. Destroyers were subject to no limitations under any of the naval conferences, so every nation embarked on building more of them and making them bigger and better. At the beginning of the war, There were 179 in service in the Royal Navy, and 215 in the United States Navy. Though not the biggest or the baddest ships afloat, destroyers are multi-role vessels. They served as convoy escorts, deploying depth charges from their decks to destroy submarines, and as the war went on, carried sonar detection capabilities. With the main fleet, they acted as screens against enemy aircraft and submarines, and could themselves deploy torpedoes against enemy ships. Not to mention that their 100mm to 130mm guns were perfectly good for shore bombardment, standard artillery and mortar tubes sizes typically being between 100 and 160mm. Again, a rather humble naval gun is a robust weapon on land. The expanded roles required of vessels during the Second World War also brought older ship classifications back into parlance, including the frigate and the corvette. Both of these vessels served mostly in convoy escort roles and were kind of stripped down destroyers. They were smaller, nimbler, and faster, but had less armor and smaller guns, making them better suited to submarine hunting where massive surface weapons don't really offer any advantage. What you need is lots of eyes and lots of ways to deploy depth charges. Today, frigates and corvettes have made a huge comeback as the old roles that I defined way back in episode eight no longer really apply. We don't have battleships anymore, and most surface vessels are really missile platforms. Most navies today don't even have destroyers, though the line between destroyers, frigates, and corvettes is kind of blurry. Anyway, I'm not really here to talk about modern navies, nor am I particularly qualified to discuss it, though I do have a strong feeling about the necessity of the Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier in the modern Royal Navy, but that's probably a totally different discussion. Of course, Any discussion of the state of navies entering the Second World War would be incomplete without discussing the role of submarines. The submarine had become the primary means of interdicting enemy merchantmen, but they also spurred technological developments in anti submarine warfare, leading to echolocation, radar, and radio positioning techniques, or signals intelligence. In addition to detection, more submarine killing techniques were devised from the simple depth charge rolled off the back of a ship to mortar launch depth charges that could scatter 24 of them over a broad area to kill anything underwater in that general position. Submariners developed their own techniques to counter these developments, including the wolf pack, radar detection technology, passive sonar, long-lasting batteries, snorkels, and small gyrocopters they could launch to search for ships on the horizon. In the end, the anti-submarine technology would win out, at least in the Atlantic, where the Allies had the industrial capacity to produce more merchant vessels escorts, escort carriers, and anti-submarine munitions. In the Pacific, the American submarines would devastate Japanese shipping, but the Japanese never developed or fielded any real anti-submarine force. Lastly, of course, there is the aircraft carrier itself. We discussed American and Japanese carrier doctrine in depth already, as well as the overall development of the carrier as a weapon system, so I won't belabor that too much here. We also discussed the Royal Navy's aerial raid on Toronto in episode 8, I think it was. Great Britain was the other power, besides the US and Japan, to recognize the revolution in military affairs that naval aviation represented. The Royal Navy was actually the first service to make plans for a ship designed specifically as an aircraft carrier, the HMS Hermes, though the Japanese were the first to actually field one. Alongside their new naval arm, the Royal Navy continued to commission battleships, After the London Naval Conference, the British government reduced spending on new warships and only built two new ones, the Rodney and the Nelson. These were added to the fleet of 13 older battleships. In 1936, after all naval treaties had expired and the threat of war loomed large, five more battleship keels were laid down, each 34,000 tons, that would enter service in 1941 and 1942. Between the two world wars, the Royal Navy would add seven aircraft carriers to her roles. Most of these were not laid down as carriers, though, and were converted from other hulls, mostly cruisers. The most successful of these was the HMS Ark Royal, coming in at 21,000 tons. During the war, six more carriers would be constructed. The early war was rather harsh on British carriers, at least at first. The Hermes was sunk off the Indian coast in early 1942, the Courageous was sunk by a German submarine in 1939, and the HMS Glorious was sunk off the coast of Norway during the brief fighting there early in the war. So many were brought down because they played such an active part in the war. Though they never really engaged in large carrier-on-carrier actions like the Americans and Japanese did in the Pacific, they were always involved in land and sea engagements. The Ark Royal played a large role in the hunt for the Bismarck, and disabled her steering when a torpedo bomber struck her rudder. They also operated in the Pacific and Mediterranean, as we discussed during the episode on the raid on Toronto and the Japanese raids in the eastern Indian Ocean. The war would be hard on the Royal Navy, but it would persevere. After the fall of France, the Royal Navy had to somehow hold the empire together against the might of the German high seas fleet, the Regia Marina, and technically much of the French fleet. Not only was there the Battle of the Atlantic to fight to keep the home islands alive, but also maintaining the lines of communication and supply with all the far-flung outposts of empire. Troop ships and resources were coming in from India, Australia, and New Zealand, and the rest of the overseas possessions and commonwealths. Again, troops and material were flowing out to all of the various fronts in Africa, the Middle East, Burma, and the Pacific. The Royal Navy had to somehow conduct operations throughout, while also maintaining a presence in the Mediterranean. And they wouldn't be content to just run convoy escort. They went on the offensive anywhere they could, trying to literally keep German and Italian ships at bay. Once large amphibious landings began, the Royal Navy was present for all of them, in North Africa, Sicily, and Normandy. This high op-tempo placed a large demand on British shipyards, and by war's end, four battleships were still under construction, as well as 29 aircraft carriers, and numerous other cruisers, destroyers, and smaller vessels. As for the United States Navy, it had to fight against the U.S. Congress' isolationist tendencies. Despite this, it had an advantage over the Army, and that it was recognized by all that the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans were the medium of American isolationism, and thus the U.S. Navy was the guardian of those media. This meant that the penny-pinching representatives and senators of the interwar years were willing to at least maintain spending on the fleet. As storm clouds assembled over Europe, and with lobbying from President Roosevelt, Congress passed the Two Ocean Navy Act on June 14, 1940. Better late than never, this increased the overall tonnage of capital ships in the Navy and allowed for the construction of enough smaller vessels for the U.S. Navy to essentially have two full services, the Atlantic Fleet and the Pacific Fleet. On September 9, 1940, another law was passed to beef up the Navy that would increase the strength of the Navy by 70%. Then, as we all know, the attack on Pearl Harbor happened, which dealt a withering blow to the Pacific Fleet. After the attack, the Pacific Fleet only had 3 aircraft carriers, 3 cruisers, 13 destroyers, and 29 subs with which to strike back at the Japanese. Reinforcements were coming though, and in a few years, American industrial might would be churning out so many new ships, the Japanese couldn't sink them fast enough if they tried. And they would try. We have already discussed the development of American naval aviation at length, but the U.S. Navy would completely commit to naval aviation during the course of the Second World War. The U.S. would construct 20 fleet carriers, nine light carriers, and over 100 escort carriers between 1940 and 1945. At the end of the war, the U.S. carrier fleet alone was 102 vessels strong. American industry turned out so much that the U.S. government essentially just gave the Royal Navy 26 escort carriers. The Pacific fleet grew exponentially during the war. From humble beginnings in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, the Pacific fleet that floated off the coast of Japan at the end of the war consisted of 11 fleet carriers, 5 light carriers, 8 battleships, 17 cruisers, and nearly 100 destroyers. This fleet had more than 1,000 carrier-based aircraft just to itself. This fleet, over the course of the war, beat the Japanese Navy to a pulp. They shot down 12,000 Japanese aircraft and sank 168 Japanese warships along with over 350 Japanese commerce vessels. Cruisers and destroyers played a massively important role as well. Destroyers were the backbone of the escorts in the Atlantic, and screened for the carriers in the Pacific, as well as performing innumerable other tasks. The cruisers were the real heavy hitters, their 8-inch guns doing most of the heavy lifting in ship-on-ship action in the Pacific. At the end of the war, the destroyer fleet would be 745 strong, And we can't forget the silent service, which did most of the work against Japanese shipping. By the end of the war, the U.S. subfleet was 205 strong. The U.S. Navy would also, obviously, be the workhorse of American landings. American ships and merchantmen had to carry troops and supplies over the Atlantic to supply the invasions. In North Africa, Sicily, and Normandy, the fleet protected the troops going ashore. For Normandy, the Navy brought six battleships, 4,000 landing craft and dozens of cruisers and destroyers to get the 250,000 men ashore in just one day. The U.S. Navy performed absolutely Herculean tasks on an almost routine basis. During the interwar years, the French tended their navy as well, and was not a weak force, even if a bit more outdated than some of the other great powers. The French fleet had seven battleships at the outbreak of the war, five of which were built during the First World War and had since been refitted. The other two, the Dunkirk and the Strasbourg, were more modern constructions from the 1930s and were first-rate. The French had laid down the keels for four more battleships by the time they had capitulated to Germany. Two of these were the massive Richelieu class, the Richelieu herself, and the mighty Jean Bart, which we discussed in episode 30. Both of these were impressive vessels. They had the highest armor-to-weight ratio ever laid down. They were 35,000 tons, 242 meters long, and had 15-inch guns. Unfortunately, neither ship would fight for the Third Republic. The Jean Bart was still being completed when the Battle for France commenced, and made for French Morocco to avoid being captured by the Germans. There, she went into dock, unsure of what her ultimate fate would be. As we discussed, the American invasion of North Africa brought her into her service against the Allies, and she sustained heavy damage from dive bombers, but survived. After the naval battle of Casablanca, she remained in port at Casablanca unfinished, The Allies considered taking her into active service, but the port facilities to complete her were not present at Casablanca, so there she sat out the rest of the war. In 1945, after Germany surrendered, the French government finished her construction, and she remained in service with the French fleet until the 1960s. Richelieu had a strange fate as well. She had been completed prior to the German invasion, but only just barely, and when the writing was on the wall, she fled to Dakar, Senegal, then in French West Africa. En route, the Third Republic fell, and the ship was essentially under Vichy control. The Royal Navy attacked her in an attempt to destroy her or compel her captain to turn over the ship to the free French cause. As she attempted to flee Dakar, she was struck by British torpedo bombers from the HMS Hermes, as a matter of fact, and sunk, but that harbor was so shallow, the hull settled on the bottom before her deck submerged, so she just kind of sat there. She would remain there, undergoing repairs until the French fleet turned over to the Allies after Operation Torch. She then was incorporated into the Allied fleet in 1942. She was taken to the United States for repairs and then sent to serve in the British home fleet in 1944. Following that, she was sent to serve her final days of the war in the Pacific. She participated in the liberation of Singapore and French Indochina. Her post-war career would last until 1960. The French fleet did have a strong cruiser force going into the war and our heavy cruisers were so robust that terms had to be included in the naval treaties to allow them to continue to exist. The heavy cruiser and light cruiser distinction were partly put into place to accommodate the Tourville and Algerie classes, though they still had to shed some armor to meet displacement restrictions. Destroyers, as we discussed, were not subject to any restrictions, and the French had 59 of them in service at the start of the war. Additionally, the French had a modest submarine force of 86 boats, which went virtually unused. Surprisingly, the French also possessed a purpose-built aircraft carrier, the Bairn. It was the first of three, but the other two were never completed. It was 183 meters long and had the smokestack and bridge extending from her starboard, or right, side. Unlike her battleship cousins, she never saw any real action. She was moored in the French East Indies during the capitulation and was only ever utilized as an aircraft transport during the war. Overall, the French fleet saw very little action during the war, aside from a few exceptions. After the fall of France, the bulk of the fleet went to Iran, where most of them were scuttled after the annexation of Vichy. Some made it to English ports after the capitulation and immediately entered service on the Allied side, and others were later captured or turned over to the Allies as the war progressed. The Soviet Navy was the weakest of the Allies. Russian naval strategy had always had three fulcrums. Their cold water ports in St. Petersburg and Archangelsk, their warm water ports on the Black Sea, particularly Sevastopol, and their Pacific port at Vladivostok. Compounding their initial geographic weakness in naval power was the fact that their navy was mostly older ships held over from the Tsarist navy. For the most part, the Russian fleet was a brown water navy, focused on patrolling the Black and Baltic seas. Its blue water navy primarily focused on the Arctic and Pacific, though the port at Sevastopol was certainly capable of taking on capital ships. The Soviet battleship fleet consisted of three older vessels of 23,000 tons and 12-inch guns built by the Tsars, and one newer one was under construction when the war began. The Soviet Union did actually possess one aircraft carrier, the Stalin, that could host a modest 22 planes. The cruiser fleet wasn't much better, consisting of a mere five heavy cruisers and five light cruisers, one being in an absolutely ancient ship built in 1896 and still in service. The Red Navy, being a mostly littoral service, did have a decent destroyer force. Though most of its hulls were laid down between 1911 and 1927, all of them had been modernized and Soviet shipyards would continue to turn out more throughout the war. The Soviet fleet didn't play a huge role in the war, and sailors probably saw more action on land than at sea, either as naval infantry or simply as sailors pressed into service on land. There was some naval action during the Battle of Sevastopol, when the fleet first ferried men into the besieged city and then rushed them out. They shelled German positions during the battle as well, though did not make a significant contribution. The Soviets also received some vessels through Lend-Lease to beef up their naval force, including the battleship Archangelsk, commissioned in 1944, which was actually just a British Royal Sovereign-class battleship. And now to the German Navy, the Kriegsmarine. After the First World War, the Treaty of Versailles put very strict limits on the German Navy. It was limited to 12 cruisers, 6 of which were light cruisers, 12 destroyers, and 12 torpedo boats. You'll notice that they were completely forbidden from building battleships or submarines. The Allies were keen to prevent Germany from being able to challenge the Royal Navy in the North Sea again with capital ships, or allow them to prepare a commerce-raiding navy. As the 1920s wore on, however, the government in Berlin began to establish itself more, and in 1929 launched the first of the pocket battleships, the Deutschland. The Deutschland had six 11-inch guns and eight torpedo tubes, but its real claim to fame was its top speed of 26 knots, or about 30 miles per hour, which far outpaced almost any ship of the same class. Two more vessels of the same class would be launched in 1932 and 1936, the Scheer and the Graf Spee. Following Hitler's rise to power, the Kriegsmarine would add four more proper battleships to its roles. The first two, the Scharnhorst and the Neisenau, again, were not necessarily as powerful as the battleships of other navies, but were faster at 27 knots. The other two battleships, the Tirpitz and the Bismarck, would be the German Navy's most powerful ships, and would enter service early in the war. The Bismarck was probably the most famous German naval vessel of all time, despite its short career. It was launched in 1939, but didn't finish sea trials until 1941, when it was unleashed on the North Atlantic. This gave the Kriegsmarine seven battleships to work with, but that was far from enough to take on the Royal Navy, so they are mostly used as commerce raiders. As we discussed way back in Episode 11, I believe, the Bismarck was intercepted by the Royal Navy. She managed to sink the battlecruiser Hood, but then was brought down by the Ark Royal, King George V, the Rodney, and the Dorsetshire in May of 1941. As impressive as aspects of the German surface fleet were, It was their undersea fleet that truly stood out. The German submarine building program really got underway in 1935, when Berlin entered into a bilateral pact with London, outside of the parameters of the previous naval conferences, which essentially allowed Germany to expand its submarine fleet to equal that of Britain's. Thus, German naval industry began a four-year program of building submarines. By the start of the war, the Kriegsmarine had constructed 57 short and medium-range submarines and 15 ocean-going subs the start of the war only prompted them to put more emphasis on U-boat construction. As the first shots were fired in Europe, they had 63 keels already laid down and under construction, and they would eventually add over a thousand U-boats to their fleet over the course of the war, 635 of which would never return. Though the aircraft carrier never became an instrumental part of the Kriegsmarine surface fleet, they did construct ships of the Groff Zeppelin class, which never entered into active service. In the end, the Kriegsmarine was essential to the German war effort, but it never reached that critical mass to crack Britain. It was a problem the German Empire had contended with since its founding. Germany was a land power first, but needed to maintain a fleet to remain relevant. Achieving the right balance is something neither the Kaiser nor Hitler could get quite right. Unlike the United States, with its essentially unlimited industrial power, Germany could not support all three legs of air power, land power, and sea power at once. They could really only choose two, but in the Second World War tried to do all three, with the land power leg as the most robust. It obviously did not work. Perhaps surprisingly for a Mediterranean power, the Italian fleet was actually fairly modern and competent, if not particularly large when compared to the likes of the Royal or U.S. Navy. The Italian fleet had two battleships at the start of the war, the Littorio and the Vittorio Veneto, and added two more over the course of the war, the Roma and Impero. The Italians also had a fairly impressive cruiser force, including the Trento, launched in 1927, which was quick and had large guns, but was too expensive to produce more than one of its class. By 1939, Italy had added the Capitani Romani class to its roles, which were impressively fast, getting up to 40 knots, and armed with eight 5-inch guns as well as eight torpedo tubes. By the time Italy entered the war, she had eight heavy cruisers and 10 light cruisers, with an additional 14 nearing completion. This was supplemented by a 61-vessel-strong destroyer force. These counted among the most effective Soldati-class, with 120mm guns and a top speed of 39 knots. Though oft forgotten, the Italian submarine force was actually surprisingly effective too. Of the many small, coastal, medium, and ocean-going submarines constructed, they were able to field 32 in the waters of the Atlantic Ocean for commerce raiding. These destroyed 100 Allied commerce vessels, for a total of 569,000 tons of cargo sent to the bottom. Not an insignificant contribution to the Axis war effort. What Italy distinctly lacked was aircraft carriers, which it felt the effect of as soon as it had to go up against the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean. As we have now discussed more than once, British air power in the Mediterranean was crucial to their operational success, and without carriers, the Italians were unable to bring their own air power with them. Yes, they had land-based aircraft, but those lacked the flexibility of carrier-borne aircraft and were much more difficult to coordinate with the naval operations. After the Battle of Cape Matapan, at the southern tip of the Peloponnese, the Italians realized the need for carriers and began converting an ocean liner into a carrier to be dubbed the Aquila, or Eagle. By the time they began the project in 1941, it was far too late, however the ship would never enter service. The greatest hindrance to the Italian Navy throughout the war though, but especially as the years wore on, was the lack of fuel. When the war began, they only had about a year's worth of fuel reserves, and once that was consumed, there were few options to replenish it. The Germans had the most reliable access to oil from the Ploesti fields in Romania, but they had lots of thirsty engines to feed, from tanks to aircraft to U-boats, and had hardly any left over for the Italians. With the Royal Navy boxing them in at the Suez Canal and Strait of Gibraltar, there was effectively no way for them to import oil from sources farther afield, and the Italian Navy was starved of fuel by the end. And finally we get to the Imperial Japanese Navy, the Nippon Kaikoku Kaigun. Like the British Empire, and to a lesser extent the United States, the Empire of Japan was chiefly a naval power. After the Meiji Restoration, the Japanese set about modernizing their armed forces, and deliberately modeled their navy after that of the British. Part and parcel of this was constructing new warships based on modern designs. Their success at the Battle of Tsushima in 1905 demonstrated that they had elevated their navy to world class, and they would continue to maintain their naval edge right up to the Second World War. The Japanese were among the first and most enthusiastic to adopt naval aviation as a chief means of conducting war at sea. As stated earlier, the British were the first to design an aircraft carrier from scratch, but the Japanese were the first to launch one built from the keel up as a carrier in 1922, when the Hosho hit the waters of the Pacific for the first time. The Hosho represented a true revolution in military affairs, which we discussed thoroughly in episode 25. Unlike the Royal Navy, and even the U.S. Navy to an extent, the Japanese assigned the carrier a central role in their doctrine and war plans. In 1932, the Akagi and Kaga were transformed from 25,000-ton battlecruisers into two more carriers. Then came the smaller Ryuzio, the smallest carrier in the world at only 7,000 tons. Following those came the Soryu and Hiryu. The Japanese Navy had fully invested in a strong naval air arm, and would add three more carriers before the start of the war, the Hokaku, Zyokaku, and Kyuryu. The Imperial Japanese Navy had a total of eight aircraft carriers in service at the start of the war, the largest carrier fleet in the world. Over the course of the war, the Japanese would add five more fleet carriers and 19 smaller escort carriers. Despite their massive investment in their carrier arm, the Japanese still had an impressive battleship fleet. They had four battleships with a displacement of 28,000 tons, two Congo-class and two Huso-class. They possessed two 29,500-ton battleships, the Issei and Hyuga, and two 32,000-ton ships, the Nagato and Mutu. On top of these eight, the Japanese also added the absolute units, Musashi and Yamato, the biggest battleships ever constructed, at 68,000 tons. They had nine 18-inch guns each, which were themselves the largest guns ever mounted on a ship. Now, whether or not these monster ships were worth the investment is another question entirely. Sure, they were impressive, and could go toe-to-toe with any other vessel on the high seas. But is that what the Japanese needed? Just to construct them consumed massive amounts of steel, and then to maintain them cost a fortune, not to mention operate them. And you have to take into account their fuel consumption, which came in at something like 10 tons an hour. All of those resources could probably have been better spent producing more cruisers and destroyers. This becomes more apparent when you take into account that the Yamato and Musashi barely actually fought in any battles. Their biggest contribution was mostly to look good and act as a sponge for American attack aircraft. So yeah, the Japanese battleships were cool, but really don't seem worth the effort. Unlike the big boys, Japanese cruisers played a huge role in the war and were definitely worth their tonnage. Their cruisers were well-armed, with older ships carrying a modest six 8-inch guns, but later classes bearing more. The Nachi and Otago class cruisers had 10 8-inch guns. As the years went on, the Japanese began adding more guns until the Mogami and Keiko-class cruiser arrived with six gun turrets, three forward and three astern, which allowed them to deliver a storm of high explosives to their American foes. The Japanese destroyer fleet was up to the task as well. At the start of the war, they had 112, though some were leftovers from the First World War. Their Kagero-class destroyers were something special, though. They were fast and had eight torpedo tubes, allowing them to unleash impressive torpedo spreads, and had a top speed of 39 knots, allowing them to outrun just about anything they came up against. Twelve of these vessels eventually entered service. And there you have it, a survey of the great powers navies in the Second World War. Despite this being longer than most regular episodes, I still feel like I only scratched the surface. Don't worry, though. Many of these topics will be covered in more detail when they come up organically. Like I said, I could probably do a full episode on each fleet individually, but I don't want to get bogged down so I hope you have at least a better idea of where the world was in terms of maritime power at the time. Again, you can go to CassisBellyPodcast.com to find a bunch of extra material related to this episode. I've uploaded pictures and illustrations of the various Navy's warships with short descriptions, and I hope you'll go check that out.